1: Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babek Hayeri. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. This is the College Football Survivor Show, where we are all about the race for the college football championship. I'm Babak Hayeri, and I'm joined by the exceptional Shahan J. Haraja, national college football writer for CBS Sports. You can find us on x and tiktok at cfb Survivor show where we have video highlights of the show run polls and read your feedback as a podcast we always appreciate it when you take a moment to like rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your shows good reviews help us expand our audience you know we're doing this the afternoon morning right after the semifinals it's january 2nd those were two of the best games we've seen in the playoff era i'm just gonna Ask all of you for a little patience with me, only because my voice I caught some weird cold like Christmas Eve. My voice just solely decided to go on hiatus. It's about, oh, 75% back. But I apologize if it's not the normal, the normal tone you're usually used to. But luckily, Shahan's voice is great. But so let's let's start talking about these games. First of all, I, I hope you had a good new year. Um, and let's talk about what happened. Uh let's talk about what happened. We could start in chronological order. You know, Rose Bowl was first, although not early uh, because I love that sunset, but uh, we got a heck of a matchup between Michigan and Alabama. It was as described.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. So obviously it's no secret. I Kind of thought that Michigan was going to struggle in this game. And some of the issues that I worried about did come to fruition, right? I mean, this was a Michigan team that did struggle, uh, especially in the first half to run the ball. Alabama was able to do a good job against them. But this was a Sharon Moore master class. This was him using so much misdirection. They came out in formations that I've never seen before. It, it is unbelievable what they did. And one of the factors, too, that I think we really saw was Alabama struggled uh, – in man coverage you know they they really haven't played a lot of zone this year and that was something that Michigan was immediately taking advantage of they knew look we're not going to beat these cornerbacks and safeties one-on-one so what we're going to do is we're going to get them in motion we're going to get them going side to side we're going to uh you know jut this way and then cut back it was unbelievable what Michigan was able to do and you know the funny thing about this game is that it ended up going to overtime Michigan kind of needed a late drive to win the game But Michigan was, to me, clearly the better team for the entire afternoon. I I think that, you know, when you look at the way that they played defensively, uh, their pass rush was something that I did not expect to be maybe as good as it was. That, That hasn't been a strength for them, but they were able to get after Alabama's offensive line, again, using angles, using misdirection. The funny thing about this game, too, from a Michigan perspective, is that it actually reminded me a little bit of how TCU attacked Michigan last year. Especially defensively, they used a lot of angles. They came from from different places. They used linebackers. They they used safety blitz. Uh, I think that Michigan was able to incorporate a lot of that in a big way, and of course, uh, still have a lot of success with their with their extremely good defensive line. So a total team effort. Uh, Michigan again, the, the team that absolutely deserved to win. And shout out to Blake Coram, by the way. That two play drive in overtime was. As memorable as any as we've ever had. I, I mean, it gave me shades of Sony Michelle back in 2017 against Oklahoma in overtime. That's how good I, I think the play was. Michigan first playoff win in uh, in the college football playoff era. They're going to play in a national championship game for the first time since we've started having national championship games. What a day to be a Michigan Wolverine!
1: Yeah, because they they snuck in right before the BCS was created in 97. And and beat Wazoo in the Rose Bowl, the very same stadium they were just in. I, I, what struck me a lot, uh, especially in that first half, my notes I was taking as I was watching the game, I thought the best defender on the field against Michigan was Michigan because they just would occasionally just make mistakes. I mean... uh, JJ McCarthy had a a good overall game. It was what we were hoping for. You know, he, if her, if if Michigan was going to win, he needed to step up a little bit. He didn't play world beer, it isn't like you know the 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 battle we saw in the Sugar Bowl, but he stepped up. But initially, there was a moment where we were like, oh, it's going to go off the rails quick because he throws what looks like an interception. They lucked out because the defender's heel was already past the line when he when he went up for the catch, so it was it was ruled uh it, it was ruled not an interception, but um and then the special teams for Michigan and, and many people pointed out, this is another uh, coach's son assistant situation, but they were, they had some, I mean, we watched Morgan drop a punt, you know, fumble a punt uh, that just turned into a possession for uh, Alabama, allowed them to get back in the game. Um, and uh, there were just enough errors that I was just kind of like, okay, well, Michigan's worst enemy seems to be themselves. Um And then the second half, we saw, I thought Alabama – because we all knew. We have two very strong coaching groups here. We knew Alabama was going to make adjustments heading to that second half. So despite, as you pointed out, the incredible work by the Michigan defensive line in the first half. I mean, they got five sacks. They were coming at them in all kinds of directions. It was absolutely fascinating to watch – you know that you the the uh, Alabama offensive line would go after some guys and you just see I, there was one i forgot who it was he just came right through the line like completely unblocked and took t- t- out milro and so you were like they were able to control it they only had one sack i believe in the second half and then at that point it was just again it was just it was striking to watch to watch those adjustments and see how they delivered. I mean, again, though, um, we could talk a little bit, if you'd like, also about, we'll have to talk about Alabama's errors as well. The thing that that took me, the, the, the ultimate thing that also struck me about this game is watching the two performances, is neither of the teams looked like world beaters. They both looked good, and they were both matched up well, and they both had moments where each team had a chance to win it. Um, arguably, Michigan, I think, had the edge for most of the game, um and then you know alabama got ahead and then michigan you know jj mccarthy finally stepped up but i think i just came out of that game because i know it, it made me think about what you said jahan you said like you think the national champion is going to come out of the sugar bowl so as i was watching this game i'm like do i think whichever team because again win in overtime do i think one of these teams looks like the team that's going to walk into the championship game and just steamroll their opponent i don't think so but there's so many other layers we should, I'm sorry, there's so many other layers we got to go into this. By the way, one other error I wanted to mention, I still couldn't believe, like, again, there were mental errors by Michigan. Like, they had, I forgot which tight end it was, had an unnecessary roughness, just like a pointless point. The guy was getting up, it was a classic, like, you know, trying to assert aggression and just handed more yards to Alabama. There were so many moments, they messed up that extra point. And I'm just kind of like, you know, the classic, boy, I wonder if that's going to haunt them, come back to haunt them. And then you know, that's what's in it overtime. And I'm thinking, like, if Michigan loses this in overtime, they're gonna look back at that botched hold and they're gonna completely be kicking themselves. So it was a fascinating game. It was just so many errors on both sides that I was just kind of like one of these teams is gonna is gonna screw, which is totally not what I expected. I think. I think you expect with Harbaugh, you expect with Saban that these teams are gonna be coached at the top level. And I think there's a bit of excitement. There's you know, maybe the Rose Bowl mystique. I don't know if we want to go that path. But I don't know. What do you make of all of that? yeah you know, i I want to keep the focus on Michigan, of
0: course we'll have, we'll have time to talk about them this week. This was the Alabama team that I was worried still existed, right? Like, like I look back at the Alabama, Georgia game, and I'm like, I, I mean, obviously Georgia did what they did against a skeleton crew for Florida State in the Orange Bowl, but like, I think it's fair to say too, like this is not an Alabama-level Alabama team. You know, th- th- this was... I, I don't think this was a Georgia-level Georgia team either. And now, that that's not a knock against Michigan. I think that's actually a great thing for the sports, potentially, that uh, some of the stranglehold of these couple of programs is starting to lift. Ohio State, too, by the way, not exactly the greatest bowl game either against uh, Missouri. But, you know, I, I look at this Alabama team, and they're just... <laughs> There's so many holes for for a roster, by the way, that's number one in the 247 talent composite. I I don't want to just sit here and say, oh, well, they they just weren't talented enough. They weren't good enough. They didn't have the guys. Like, I'm sorry, you have your guys. You are Alabama. You have recruited the way that you have for the last 10 years. I I don't think that not having your guys is a good enough excuse at this point. So a couple pieces I want to point to for Alabama. One, that that offensive line is a mess. It's just a total, total mess. and. Obviously, I think, you know, they have not been the same kind of unit probably since 2020. I, I believe that's when Kyle Flood left uh, as offensive line coach. And I can't remember the, the guy's name who they hired. They, they hired Kentucky's offensive line coach. He's done an all right job. But you just saw so many mistakes. You just saw so many moments where Alabama's offensive line, it's not a talent thing. I want to be 100% clear about that. It is not a talent thing. They cannot communicate. They did not know where the blitzes were coming from. They did not know where the coverages were coming from. I feel really bad having to call out this kid this much, but Alabama's center was a disaster in every aspect of the game. He was an aspect snapping the ball. We saw multiple times their center, Seth McLaughlin, laughlin killed drives with his bad snaps on the final play of the game. Uh, when Jalen Melrose has a chance to, of course, apparently the play was supposed to be a run pass option play, but the snap was low. So Jalen Melrose was like, ah, crap. I just have to run forward. I, I just have to make something happen. And there was nothing there because the snap was bad. And that doesn't even get into doing a poor job for Seth McLaughlin of calling out protections, for, for making adjustments, for sliding over and giving help to players who need it. It was one of the worst center performances I've ever seen uh, in a game of this magnitude. And that doesn't even get into, you know, uh, Kate Proctor, who apparently was dealing with a, food, uh, a foot injury, their left tackle. I mean, he was not good. He did not look ready. He did not look prepared for what Michigan was bringing at him. And so I think for me, the biggest indictment of Alabama is that their offensive line got completely outcoached. They they were not prepared for this moment whatsoever. Now, again, I I think we do also have to mention, you know, Tommy Reese didn't make the game easy, I would say, for their offense. He's going to get a lot of heat. I, I don't think he was one of the top five things wrong with Alabama yesterday, but I do think he was one of the top 10 but you have to recognize that one, your offensive line is getting whipped so you cannot rely on empty coverage. That, that is just not realistic. They brought in an H back number 45. I, I think his name was Unser or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, yeah. And, and he had like two drives where he took over that game. They just started running behind him and it went crazy. And then they stopped doing it. They went back to empty coverage. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, And the other part of it, too, and part of this is being a young player. Part of this is is that he just needs to come along a little bit more. I I mean, Jalen Milrow did a really poor job of identifying pressure. He, He did not do a good job maneuvering the pocket. He did not do a good job of handling himself. Now, again, when you were sacked five times in one half, Some of that's not your fault, too. Some of that is that your offensive line is letting you down. But as a play caller, as Tommy Reese, you have to adjust to that and try to make the game easier. You have to try and give him opportunities to make quick throws, make easy throws. You know, I I thought that there was a great sequence in the second half of the game where Reese was like, look. We got to go. We, we got to go downfield. We got to spread the defense. We got to make them think. They went straight down to Isaiah Bond, and Jalen Monroe threw by far his best pass of the day to stretch the defense. Uh, they went to Jermaine Burton on the next play. They didn't connect, but I still liked the decision to do it. And I, I don't know why there wasn't more of that. I, I don't know why there wasn't more of trying to make the game uh, you know, move side to side. I don't know why there wasn't more misdirection. I don't know. It, it was just such a bizarre sequence from this Alabama offense uh, that, again, does not have anything to do with the quality of players that they had on the field. It was coaching. It was communication. It was technique. Like, like these are things, if you are an Alabama team coached by Nick Saban, I mean, mean, these are things that are not acceptable.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, one of the things that struck me, because I went back and thought about... My notes, because again, Alabama's first touchdown was off of the muff punt. They they were able, they were short field. Um, I remember when that touchdown play happened. I mean, JC Latham had a good, he did a great job on the line opening up that hole. Uh, but at the same time, I wrote to my notes, you know, I think what threw off the Michigan defense is there was a low snap. So I think they saw the low snap, started to react to it, and the the play immediately recovered and they just there was a hole, ran right into the end zone. And I was just kind of like, oh, that's so funny. Imagine a low snap kind of paying off that way. And then as the game went on, <laughs> I started to think all about that low snap because that opening drive for Alabama in the second half, uh, it was they were moving. I just wrote, like, Wow, Alabama's moving the ball. They've come in the second half. They're absolutely ready right now. They're getting passes to the edge. You know, they got some good rushes behind Hayes. You know, the, the eight yard pass, to Isaiah Bond, you know, McClellan up for nine yards. And then there's like a bad snap, lost 13 yards, another low snap, you know, that turns into a sack of, of six yards. And then suddenly, you know, they're facing fourth and twenty-two, and I just like they literally just had an entire drive implode because there were some there were some bad snaps. And then, you know, we've talked about the final snaps; so we don't have to get too much into that. But it was fascinating too. I, I just want to credit there was a great report by two four sevens, Mike Rodak. Uh, he, he writes on Alabama. Um, Seth McLaughlin, the center, wasn't made available, um, so he went and talked to some of the the Michigan guys and Michigan defensive lineman Chris Jenkins was quoted as, as, like, he wasn't taunting him, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, he was, he's like, you know, I was kind of surprised. I was like, what happened, bro? I was genuinely, like, confused. I wasn't even trying to talk trash. I was just like, what's going on? He ain't saying nothing. So I'm imagining this conversation on the line. <laughs> like, <laughs> are you, the idea of a big line being like, are you okay, bro? You know, like, you know how that's coming across. <laughs> but that was just, that was honestly that had been the reaction because it felt like in that second half, you know, I've said again, Michigan special teams kind of let them down. I mean, even at the end of the game, it's like Michigan's going to have a couple of hail mary attempts. Maybe they're going to have a shot, and then they they nearly fumble the ball. They they were literally facing a potential safety for a loss at the very end of regulation, and then managed to Blake Cora managed to get the you know enough of a push that they could get out of the end zone, and then you know they both both teams let it go in the overtime, but. It was utterly fascinating to watch. You know, they went in a halftime. You know, up by what was it, three? And it just felt like this is too close. This is too close. Saban will make adjustments. Um, and then we watched them go ahead. Uh, the moment it was, you know, twenty to thirteen, I was thinking, boy, this seems like the situation. We haven't seen too much from McCarthy to make me think any different. And then that drive, that that, that the last drive was, of course, the the the, bo- the botch punt that was getting them out of the end zone. But yes, yeah, suddenly JJ McCarthy was able to to get them going, and they were able to uh, they were able you know big passes to Corum. You know they got a great pass to Wilson. They made all the way to first and goal in short short order, and got that great touchdown to Wilson. Um, it was fun to watch them scheme around that. But on the reverse side of the ball, I think Seth McLaughlin's bad game was was for the reasons you said. I absolutely agree. I think he just was a little bit out of his depth against the worst defense they faced for that situation to occur. But I think also we. I don't want to. I don't want to take away from Jesse Minters. Watching the way they schemed that first half was unbelievable. Um, you just would see. I love it. You, you'd see the, the replay and you'd see where all the players were moving and, and especially the shifts in their own ba- and the, the 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 defenders were doing and and the offensive line just couldn't pick it up. And I'm not sure. I don't want to. N- I don't know. You know, it's a chick. Is it is a chicken and egg? Is it Alabama was having a weak game or was Michigan just doing what Michigan has done and being a great defense? Um, absolutely looking forward to seeing how that that line that defensive line in particular and then those linebackers go against the next team but we'll get to that I think at the tail end of the show but my goodness that it, what Michigan did I, I guess is that the question was Michigan really just doing what they've done the whole season long and now people have finally seeing them against an opponent that hopefully everyone will buy into because even the, being Ohio State People are like, well, it's not quite the same thing. And then Ohio State, you know, gets gets a pretty hefty loss to Mizzou. So everyone's kind of like, see, the Big Ten's just weak. But looking at this game, I don't know. I think Michigan may have finally proven themselves. Or do they have to win the national championship before people will stop, <laughs> stop, drop the whole weak opponent thing?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, here's what I'll say, right, is that. I don't think that Michigan was able to, quote, unquote, do what they do only, right? Like, I do think, though, that they understood that. I think that Sharon Moore understood that. And one of the things that I love so much about what they did down the stretch is that they didn't ask J.J. McCarthy to do too much, but they did ask him to go out there and make plays. They did put him in positions where he had to rip a throw, where he had to find a receiver, and where he had to make a correct read. Even if it wasn't, you know, it might not have been a 60-yard bomb, right? We're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about that with that next game. But, you know, I, I think that just doing the little things right was such a big part of what Michigan was able to do. You know, when I look at this Michigan team, right, they averaged four yards per carry. Uh, that's fine. That's not necessarily what they wanted to do. A lot of that, I think, was on Blake Coram's last two runs, by the way. I think that they were under 100 yards rushing before they entered overtime. You know, it it was fine. but you know i want to point out a guy who i mentioned as potentially my number one most important player in the college football playoff roman wilson he had a catch on a tipped ball that completely changed what ended up being the game tying drive like if he doesn't make that catch i don't think that michigan ties the game i think they lose and then by the way he i believe uh, i believe he has the touchdown right after that as well where where he kind of has that misdirection play where he kind of motions in and then goes out and goes to the goal line and uh, and The secondary is completely confused. They don't know who's supposed to be covering him. And so, you know, I I think that that was a huge move by Sharon Moore. I think it was a huge play by J.J. McCarthy to spread the field. And we saw, I I mean, I I said it, uh, I I tweeted it whenever it first happened. The very first play of the game was one of the worst sequences I've ever seen. Not just from the perspective (laughs) of J.J. seemingly throwing the interception, but like the decision to basically be like, all right, we're going to run him to the short corner and he's going to kind of like short, like what was that? That that was not a good play, but the philosophy behind it started to make some sense. They wanted to get outside. They wanted to force Alabama to cover them sideline to sideline. And that helped set up the misdirection. Now that first play is still absolute garbage. Do not never do that again. But I do think that it ended up uh, paying off in a big way. And you know, when I look at Michigan, when I look at this matchup, and, you know, look, they were the number one team coming in. They, they were the favorite coming in. But I think that they were able to find advantages in the margins on offense in a way that I think did just enough to keep Alabama on its toes. Now, it will be interesting to see. And again, we're going to get to it in just a second when Michigan plays against a team that I think will be able to have some success against their defense consistently, you know, I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see how Michigan handles that. Now, they're going to also be able to have more success offensively, uh, no doubt about it. They're going to try to play ball control. I'd imagine they're going to try uh, to 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 quicken the game, limit the amount of plays, uh, try to prevent Michael Penix Jr. from being able to, to obviously do his thing. But I do think that um, Michigan handled itself very well And I think that they deserve all the credit for, for winning their first college football playoff game. And now they get to play for national championship.
1: I just want to say though, guy, I thought one of the, my sort of dark horse potential game changers almost was the game changer. And that was Will record. Every time Alabama called on him, it was like an automatic three points. And when it was getting down to the end of the game, I'm like, I, if I'm banking on who's kicking, I'm backing, I'm banking on Riker. And uh, again, it's such a change to be banking on the Alabama kicker, but uh, he nearly did. But I just want to say one other credit to to Shron Moore to those, that first touchdown and that last touchdown, I mean, not in overtime, that last touchdown regulation, they did some marvelous things to confuse that Alabama defense. I still, that initial Blake Coram touchdown. I love there was like three different guys running in different directions and, you know, Everyone watching the game was like, who's got the ball? And, you know, it was Coram who had it going right up the middle. I, I was just a delightful explosion out of their backfield where I couldn't tell who was running. Um, and then, and that final game, again, the Wilson touchdown that we were just talking about, they did a wonderful maneuver with the tight end that, that caused enough confusion in that backfield to allow Wilson to get open. And that I think was an underrated part of that, that offense is they, they schemed it really well. Um, and and it wasn't something that we really had thought of as much with Michigan, just because again, we kept talking about them as a defense heavy team, and that was that was Nedge. An and and again, that last drive where Michigan scored, I honestly that was where I didn't think they had it in them. Um, I think with Alabama ahead late in the game, 20 to 13. People thought, all right, Alabama's going to strangle this one out. Um, and, and we're going to be like, oh, it's another, hey, look, another Nick, Naben, Nick Saban surprise. And Not to take anything away from that team because where they were at the beginning, it's amazing they got as far as they did. But wow, Michigan, I think it was just, it was, they outmuscled them. They, they had the experience and it ultimately paid off. And what a great Rose Bowl. What a wonderful Rose Bowl. Um, I, I, absolutely delightful. Next, we're going to go ahead and move on to the Sugar Bowl on the College Football Survivor Show.
0: The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.
1: So again, there were two great playoff games yesterday. I, again, I only whets my appetite for when we'll have a whole bunch more next season. But out in New Orleans, we have the Sugar Bowl. This is the game that basically lived up to what we thought it was going to be—a bit of a battle of quarterbacks. It was going to be a lot of good offense. It was going to be interesting to see how lines were going to shape up against each other. We had Washington and Texas. Washington ultimately triumphed, but my goodness, that game—just like the previous one—came down to the absolute. Final play. Shahan, what were your impressions?
0: Yeah, well, I, we got to start with that final sequence because that was one of the weirdest things that ever happens. Oh. So I, I said many times over the course of the game Ryan Grubb and Killen DeBoer, you are madmen. And at the end of the game, they were really mad. <laughs> they, they, I do not know what was going on there. So Of course, uh, let's start with the Dylan Johnson injury. So Washington, of course, runs Dylan Johnson out there. He's been dealing with a foot injury. He re-aggravated it even during the game. But they were trying to run out the clock. They were trying to get one final play in. Uh, They had an opportunity to run the clock down to about 10 seconds left. But Dylan Johnson has to be helped off the field, which stops the clock which which is insane. That that is a crazy rule that the clock only starts uh, on the snap. I, I feel like I feel like maybe you could do it on the refs' whistle or something like that, so they have the opportunity to run some more clock down. It's just crazy stuff. But then Texas, because of that, instead of having to do potentially a lateral play, they find Jordan Whittington down the field, get onto the edge of the the red zone have multiple throws into the end zone and, and have a chance to win. It was, it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. If Washington had lost that game because Dylan Johnson hurt his foot, that would have been one of the worst beats in the history of football. It would have been that bad.
1: It would have, it would have somehow outdone the Jordan Travis injury. It would, have undone, it would have outdone the Jordan Travis injury in terms of like the crisis of what it would have caused for one team. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, it's 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 great you point that out because, you know, watching that whole sequence, I mean, you understood. I mean, some people were like, oh, why didn't Washington just knee it? It's like, no, no, there was a strategy there. If you can get the first down, you've totally ended the game. And, you know, you want it. You, totally. you don't want you just you need to run it. And then, again, the Johnson injury could have happened at a worse. Time. And the funniest thing, I believe the rule, it's from back when, you know, the hurry up offenses were sometimes also just sort of fa- people were accusing them of faking injuries and things like that. So the funny—I don't know if you caught the sequence—the the ref asked Texas if they wanted to run off ten seconds. They're like, "We don't want to run off ten seconds because it's a—it was their option." <laughs> and so the, you know, the, the the game freezes in time. You know, um, and it was it was absolute. And then it wasn't just that. Remember, they kick it, and then there's kick catching interference because they have a guy out there. On Washington, who's apparently never covered a kick before, or he's a true freshman or something, and he just—it was the snapper who just runs over there and like what gets touches the touches the receiver, and I I could not believe that sequence. So again, then you get a nice kick catching interference on top of that, Um, and you just watch Texas. You suddenly see you know Sark knows how to coach an offense. They get that ball moving, and you watch them just rush into. The, uh, the red zone. And here is where a quote, and I'm not going to say it's a message board quote, because I remember I heard Brock War- Huard uh, uh, mention this himself in an interview. Texas, pardon me, the Washington defense is really quirky in that you can't, and this isn't the way he phrased it, but you can't count on them to just, you know, do great defense when, when you want them to. But when you need them to have a great defensive play, suddenly they do it. Uh, you can take it back to Arizona state a pick six that ended up solving the game for Washington here, Elijah Jackson, who got burned a few times. There was a, there was at least one pass for Texas where Elijah Jackson was the one who just completely botched the coverage and, or at least the, 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 ca- the receiver from Texas was able to get it on him, but he had like a picture perfect pass deflection to end the game. And I, I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was with everything everyone had said, like, oh, you can't look at the numbers of Washington. They just have some way of getting it done. And then suddenly, watching that, I was thinking about everything we kept saying about Penix. You know, he has that weird way of just making a play happen. Um, this game, I don't think there was any, we didn't need to, to give that excuse. He was just awesome. We were watching some of the best deep passes anyone's ever seen, just getting these tight windows and nailing his receivers. And granted, we also saw how incredible his receivers were, doing everything from shoelace catches to, uh, to, to running off and just catching balls that, you know, would, would make some other receivers potentially struggle. But it's the defense this whole time that has the magical charm. Maybe it's, it's always been them, and we just we get so distracted. And that's not to take away from, from some of the other strengths of Washington defense. I can't t- tell you how many times I wrote down as I'm watching the game, like, Braylon Trice is legit. Like, he kept getting back there and absolutely causing havoc. Um, Ewers absolutely got knocked. There was that one hit. And it was right after. I wouldn't say it's a dirty hit or anything like that. It's what you normally do to try and disrupt a, a passer. It's like there was this one hit where they were actually worried he might have been concussed. But as soon as Ewers let go of the ball, Trice was right on him and just pushed him hard to the turf, and you watched him fall back, and his head a little, did a little bounce. And, and again, hopefully he's. I didn't. I, he was apparently okay. But, I mean, they really got back there and absolutely did just enough. And on the other side of the ball, you know, we were always saying, oh, gosh, DeMondre Sweat and Brian Murphy are going to absolutely wreck these guys. They certainly put stress back there. There were moments where Sweat got back there. Also, Sweat looked a little tired. At one point, he was seen on the sideline, you know, loosening up on the bike. I'm not sure what was going on there. Brian Murphy had a couple of good plays, including a touchdown. By the way, uh, we, we, uh, that will probably get uh, get forgotten in in the in the history of this game. But he had one hell of a, a touchdown there. Watching him kind of trot off the field with pride. But that the Washington defense—they can just get enough done, and I think. That is something that a lot of folks just did not think of. Maybe they just think of the old Pac-12. They think of, oh, it's all offense. They're not physical. They can't really play. Um, and of course, if we're talking about physical, the Joe Moore Award-winning offensive line need a lot of credit because they created enough protection all the time to to allow Penix to do what he does and, and get allow Dylan Johnson to get some of those runs in. And, and again, we're, we don't know exactly what's going on. We were told that he re-aggra- re-aggravated an existing injury. But um, I hope we get to see him as well as we move forward. But I think the sheer physicalness of this Washington team is what struck me the most that I did not expect.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what, I wanna talk about Washington. I wanna talk about Michael Bendix Jr. Michael Penix Jr. just had one of the greatest games that we've ever seen from a quarterback in college football. It was up there with the Joe Burrow games that we saw in the 2019 college football playoff. It was up there with the Mac Jones games, with the Deshaun Watson games, every single one of them. It was one of the best we've ever seen. 29 of 38 for 430 yards and two touchdowns, the fourth best passing performance ever, In college football playoff history, he completed uh, he completed passes to eight different receivers six of them for more than 40 yards like it is unbelievable what that guy does. And to me, this was such a great example. The, The big plays are great. The big plays are great. But. What makes Michael Penix Jr. special is the little things, mm-hmm. is his ability to step up, avoid pressure. We saw him using the quarterback run game and scramble game a little more than we've seen because they've been trying to protect his health. We, we saw him, uh, you know, not just hit the seventy-yard passes to Jalen Polk, but hit pinpoint outs for six yards whenever they needed a first down. His protections are unbelievable. He does such a great job of identifying coverages. I feel like Michael Penix Jr is even now today still one of the most underrated players we've seen in college football over the past couple of years it is crazy what he has done and when i look at this game when i look at this Texas versus washington game quinney was a really good quarterback one who's going to play in the nfl one who probably will come back next year and and will have a chance to maybe even be a first rounder after that the reason that washington not just won this game but won this game handily was because one of these teams has Michael Penix Jr. and one of them doesn't. And that was my question coming in to the college football playoff. How big of an advantage was having the best quarterback in the field? But the reality is, I I think that Michael Penix Jr. is not just the best quarterback in the field. I think that he is the biggest mismatch out of any player in the entire college football playoff.
1: I think that's a great call. I mean, one of the things that struck me yesterday was his Pocket awareness, as you kind of noted, because he would just you'd see the replay, you'd see how he'd move around, especially with the uh, Texas's strong defenders coming through the line. He just knew where to be and where to deliver the ball. And that laser focus and that comfort just was it's something you can't some some of that is is talent. I mean, some of that's just natural talent and just sort of that that magical ability he has. And um absolutely. I mean, cause that was, and I was gonna ask you that too, because how do you compare this team with that uh that joe burrow 2019 2020 lsu team because that that has been a point of comparison in multiple places which i was there you know in 2020 for that title game when burrow just kind of went in that same stadium and, and won it all how do you think they compare i mean what what nuances would you say kind of dif- differentiate the two yeah so it's interesting i I want to take one step
0: back and say I think that we are close to reaching the end of the super team era a little bit. I think that maybe we're democratizing a little bit through the transfer portal through NIL. So I actually think that maybe 2019 LSU, 2020 Alabama will just be the best teams that we have ever see maybe ever. Like maybe we won't get teams getting back to that level because I think that maybe recruiting is going to spread out just a little bit more, especially in a 12-team playoff, especially in a a, a new power for all that sort of stuff. But with that said, I think that... LSU was a little bit more complete of a team, I'd say, defensively. Uh, you know, Washington is incredibly opportunistic. I think that LSU was a legitimately good defense that if the offense wasn't good, I think that they could have won 10 games on the back of that defense being really good. They had the Thorpe Award winner, uh, that year in Grant Delpit. They had a ton of, of linemen. They had a uh, Patrick Queen at linebacker. So, so I do think that they were a much more complete defense. Offensively, I, I think that what Washington does is competitive with what LSU does uh look I mean Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson those are the two best receivers in the NFL right now much less in college football and I think that Washington's receiver core is competitive as a college unit I don't know necessarily that it's as good as 2019 LSU but like I think that the piece that you have to like about it and I'm not gonna speak crazy don't don't worry I'm not gonna say that Michael Penix is better than Joe Burrow but I think that Michael Penix does something situationally for his team that are as good or better than Joe Burrow, you know, with his ability to, because uh, look, they had the Joe, Award, uh, Joe Moore Award winning offensive line. But one of the things that you see in their blocking schemes is that they're not just trying to maybe just traditionally win up front all the time, right? Like, like they're not necessarily just trying to keep a clean pocket and keep a ring around their quarterback sometimes they're just trying to push guys off angles so that Michael Penix can take advantage of that. So, uh, you know, they have won elitely. I mean, Troy Fatanu is going to be a, a, an eight to 10 year NFL player. He's, he's their left tackle. He, he's like their big time guy. I think the, the rest of the line is very good, but, but I think that Michael Penix also makes it look great with his ability to evade pressure and deliver pinpoint passes. So, look, I, I think that... that LSU is, uh, I mean, I think that I would still make the argument that they're the best team in the history of college football, and and Washington certainly isn't that, but I think that they have a lot of the same DNA of uh, of that LSU team. And again, when you talk about Michael Penix playing yesterday, it, it was as high a level, including the level of, of Joe Burrow in those college football playoffs. And I'm so excited to see it uh, happen against Michigan as well. Now, I will also mention. You know, I think that this is one of these places where numbers can be a little misleading. You know, Washington puts up great numbers, they have great stats, of course, but I actually think that they underrate what Washington is because of their situational excellence. Uh, I've made that case for Penix all year long. I think that Dylan Johnson was a great example of that. He only had 49 rushing yards, but every one of those were 49 of the biggest yards of the entire game. Uh, And defensively, Washington ranked bottom 20 in pass defense heading into this game. Texas wasn't great either. They were bottom 40. But when you dig into the numbers a little bit, Washington actually was top 25 nationally in yards per pass attempt allowed. So, like, I I think that they actually do a really good job of, again, handling themselves in these moments. Uh, You know, we saw in the last play of the game, that that was as textbook a pass breakup on the final play as you could ever have that that dude floated and batted the ball away that is exactly how you teach that thing right so like I think that Washington is just so good at maximizing what they are when they need to and again that's why they are the team that ultimately uh is heading to the national championship game
1: absolutely and Ryan Grubb called a hell of a game um and it's fascinating to see because he uh he knows how to take advantage of the person he has with Penix. He knows Penix knows how to make the decisions on the field, and being an offensive line background, you could see he knew how to take that. That's what the Joe Moore Award I think was less surprisingly because he's he is an offensive line guy himself, and he knows how to create this protection that allows the talent he has, and he knows the talent he has to to get it done. The, uh, you know it's so funny too, um, just in terms of ta- talent and what they can do after the catch that J- that initial deep pass to to Jalen Polk. It was a 43-yard pass. It was actually, pardon me, no, it was like a 30-something pass, but there were 43 yards after catch, which only showed the talent they had on that side of the ball as well. But one of the concerns I did have, and, and again, funny enough, it almost came to bite them because early on in the game, their commitment to the run was admirable, but there were times where I felt like they were just trying to establish a Dylan Johnson up-the-middle run when it wasn't necessary. There were a couple of times where I feel, felt they just blew downs. Because they thought in a row we're gonna just we're gonna break Texas on this drive early in the game and they're gonna completely not know what to do and then the game will be ours because they, they're aggressive they're willing to take wild risks and I thought oh man this this could go this could go badly and maybe turn into a fumble or something or just wasted downs and then I thought in the worst possible way I'm like did they wear did they wear Johnson down to the point where you know again it aggravates an injury on that final play that we've talked about obviously at the beginning of this. And I thought, my goodness, did they, did they push that too hard? Were they just trying to make that point to our when the passing was working extremely well? I'm not saying they had to completely go with the pass, but I felt like there were moments where they they're pushing their guys a little harder than they need to, not thinking about the fact that, you know, you have one more game in a week, right? If this all works out, you've got to keep these guys healthy. That was the one thing where if I was just gonna give one critique, my biggest critique was I thought there were a few drives where I didn't understand why they were pushing up the middle so much, especially um you know, you know, again, you want to keep the defense honest, all that stuff, but it was questionable. And and then with that injury to, to Dylan Johnson, it only made me go back and kind of underline those drives in my notes. Cause like, why did you guys do this then? Um, and again, there was another odd series before we we're going to talk about odd series. I, don't, I want to just point out some of the weak spots I noticed because we want to always, you know, Texas came awfully close to winning this game. I mean, awfully close to winning this game. So we don't want to necessarily say like, oh, wow, Washington ran away with it. You know, we don't even say anything. No, you know, well, 10 out of 10, no notes. No, no, there were notes. Um, there was at, I believe it was a second to last full drive. We're not talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, the, pardon me, I'd say the third to last drive. It was the one where, they just, panicked. basically went three and out. And I was like, they were getting comfortable. And, you know, he missed, I believe, four out of five passes. I'm like, what, how? It seemed like they were just, they were, I don't know if they were coasting or if Texas was taking taking the game dead seriously, and they, as, they, as they were going to do until the very end. But I couldn't quite figure it out what happened in that series where suddenly, you know, you know, it just felt like barely any clock burned. And then they just punted it right back to Texas and Texas was happy to take it and, and run with it. There's that little weirdness going on with Washington that I think could be its flaw, and I, it it's fascinating too. Because going back to what I said about the the Rose Bowl, both these teams were just flawed enough where you're like, I really can't predict. I don't expect one of these teams to roll into that into NRG Stadium on Monday and just clobber the other. I have a feeling we were going to be potentially looking for another close match. Yeah, and I,
0: I do want to mention real quick. I think that Tech, it, well. I want to say this. I think Washington, to me, was clearly the better team. I think they clearly deserved to win. I I mean, for the vast majority of this game, they dominated. Uh, I think that they were very close to making this not just a dominant game, but an astonishingly dominant game. I mean, you look at what they were able to do yards per play-wise. You look what they were able to do, obviously, in the passing game, what they were able to do situationally. But Texas had a bizarre game plan for me offensively. When you look at Texas... They were so dedicated to the pass right from the beginning. And I don't understand why. Uh, you know, Quinny completed only 10 of his first 20 passes with 6 of 15 at one point, missed his first four passes, w- uh, only hit one of his first six passes to wide receivers. And their running backs were averaging seven yards per carry. CJ Baxter was going crazy uh, in the early going on this Washington defense, you know. And, and when you talk about this Washington team, they are so much better Outside than they are inside. You know, inside is not where they want to thrive. That's going to be a factor that comes up against Michigan. But Steve Sarkisian refused to take advantage. CJ Baxter averaged seven point one yards per carry, and he only got nine carries the entire game. Texas only called eighteen running plays to running backs in this entire game when their running backs were averaging more than six and a half yards per carry. I I mean, I mentioned it in our preview show. I felt like one of the things that I was worried about was that Steve Sarkeesian was going to get too cute and was going to try to prove that uh, I'm I'm this great play caller. I can scheme it up with the best of them. I can put guys in great positions. And and I think that getting away from stuff that was working to make some weird point, it's a huge part of why Texas was, uh, was ultimately the team that fell short in this game.
1: You know, I was hearing, at least during the broadcast, I don't know if he really did goes this far, but they said Coach Sarkeesian goes as far as to plan 40 plays before, you know, so they just go through the pre-planned 40 plays. And if it's 40 plays, that's insane. I was thinking, like, at what point are you going to get to the point where you can start making your own calls based on audible into what you're seeing on the field? Um, And I wonder if that played a little bit into it, because once we got to that second half, you were seem to get comfortable and he started to play, I thought, a lot better. Um, cause yeah, those first 20 passes, 50% of them, you know, was a bad look, but then by the end of the game, I don't think anyone quite thought that he was doing awful. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree on that. And then CJ Baxter looked strong. I, that was the note I had. I mean, he, Baxter seemed to be the star of that first half, at least for Texas, I should say. And then of course. Goes right up and has a turnover that that ended up being, you know, that 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 nearly took the wind out of Texas's sails almost immediately to in that second half on that on their first drive in the second half. But yeah, it was it was a striking set of choices. I got to say I was I didn't know and I did not. I mean, I knew all of him and I but I simply did not appreciate uh, how good Jalen Blue is because as a as a running black or as a running back. As a pass catching back, I honestly thought he was one of their strengths as well, and I thought they did a great job putting him in positions to make plays. And there were points where I, I thought if they were going to win, it was going to be because they were they were doing a good job of implementing him, and he was just seemed to have a hot hand or a good stretch, especially in that second half.
0: Let's let's close with this, okay? So obviously. A- Tremendous pair of games. I, I'm so glad that this is kind of how we're leaving the four team model and uh, and heading forward. Uh, Florida State stuff, uh, be damned, because I'm still very upset about it. But we've moved on. We've moved on. Uh, where do these two games rank for you among all of the semifinal games that we have had in the four team field?
1: I I am bad at this because I'm always a recentist in a lot of these things. I mean, as far as pairs go, I think it was the best pair. Last year's was very good as well. Um, I'm a sucker for upset. So that TCU over Michigan still, I mean, that just, no one expected that. I saw that on a plane as it was landing, was coming from Mexico City on that flight. I remember I'm in customs and the customs guy starting to give me a little bit of guff, And I'm like, did you hear TCU just beat Michigan? And he was like, Really? And he's just like, stamp. I went in. Like, <laughs> I don't need to check your luggage. I'm sure you're cool. You know. I have a look where if I'm coming back from a country, they're kind of like, what's in your suitcase, buddy? You know, I mean what you what you bring it over? You look like you you like to party. Um, but uh yeah, no, I uh so I have a little bit of a soft spot for that. I just <laughs> that that first year the Oregon FSU game was just so entertaining. It was just wackiness. I could not believe what we were seeing from Jameis Winston. That one, that one Eric pass, which became a meme where he's just falling back and just chucks the ball into the air. I uh, I I admit I, I have some weak spots for those games, but um I'm not sure. I definitely put it in my top I, I was safely in my top three. Uh either of those games. Uh, I think we were, we're just we're just stellar. Um I think I certainly. Preferred. I want to say if, if it's on strength, I prefer the first one. If it's on just sheer wildness, the second one, because again, as we've talked about that final sequence of the game, that was a game that suddenly became so relevant for the most painful reason possible, quite literally and figuratively that um, my goodness. And then to still see the team that seemed to have ought to have won managed to pull it out. That's where I'd rank it. But how about you? Yeah. So, I think that
0: I think that I still have 2017 Georgia, Oklahoma as number one, uh the the overtime game where where Georgia has the comeback to to make the national title game. After that, I think that I would have the Sugar Bowl as up there with any of them. I'm trying to think if there's if there's another like. I mean, the the Ohio State-Alabama game in 2014 definitely needs mention. I mean, that was an all-time game as well. But I think I'd have the Sugar Bowl, too, and I think that I'd have... Uh, the Rose Bowl in maybe fourth or fifth, potentially. I I think that just for me, the Sugar Bowl was so entertaining. The Rose Bowl, you know, it was competitive, it was dramatic. The the stage, by the way, also, I think, plays into that because the Rose Bowl was unbelievable on that day. Obviously, the Michigan crowd that came all the way out uh, for an opportunity to to see their first playoff win, that plays into it as well. But I think that when you just talk about, like, Entertainment, the, the level that Michael Penix played at in this game. Again, one of the best games that we've ever seen. Uh when, when you talk about Texas having that stolen opportunity to maybe have a chance to go win the game, like it, I, I've just never seen anything like it. And I'll also mention, I mean, Ohio State uh versus Georgia last year, <laughs> when when the kick falls short at midnight, that also definitely deserves mention as well. So that's probably also my top five. But to end the college football playoffs 4 team format. With two straight years of awesome semifinal games,
1: not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. And again, there's a whole reason why that, that Orange Bowl turned out the way it did. But the way, seeing that, that, kind of, that, that whole question of those two teams kind of take themselves out of it, let us really focus a few days ahead on these semifinal games, which absolutely delivered. Next, we're going to have a couple of thoughts on the upcoming championship game here on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Shahan. So Monday, NRG Stadium, we're both going to be there. We're going to see these two teams, Michigan and Washington, coming off of, you could to say program-defining wins because neither one, I mean, Michigan, granted, has been there now. Cup. This is their third time at the Apple, and they made it through. Washington had one, been the only, you know, one time made it to the the playoff and uh, lost in that opening round uh, in, me, in the semifinal. So this is it. This is their chance. We're going to have a new CFP champion, um, new, you know, or BCS champion, if you want to look at it that way. another one made it in, so it's going to be fascinating. Washington's last championship was 91. Um both split it, you know, Michigan's was also a split in 97. We're going to see a chance of both teams from the north, as was pointed out in many other publications, just like the FCS, welcome the FCS football. No, but you know, they, they're, two, they're two teams from the north. By the way, my favorite point on that, last time we had two teams from northern, you know, climates in that uh, championship game was Ohio State-Oregon, of course. And now we have their rival teams, uh, Michigan and Washington, heading into the same kind of championship situation. What are your thoughts as we head towards Monday? I want to start with this. I think
0: that this national championship game matchup is a game-changing moment for the sports. One, because we have two teams that haven't played for a national championship since we started having the BCS and college football playoff national championships. Two- we have two teams from the North. The SEC is shut out for only the second time since 2005. Uh, a team that's not from the American Southeast is going to win the national championship for only the second time since USC in 2004. And that other team was Ohio State, which I think we can say is a little bit of a different kind of animal than these two teams potentially as national branch recruiting wise. It's also the number 14 team in the 247 talent composite against the number 26 team in the 247 talent composite. Washington doesn't even meet the criteria to be in the blue chip ratio, with over half of their players uh, being blue chip recruits. Now, when you look at all these trends, I mean, this is a big deal. Georgia, Alabama, Texas, Ohio State, All of these teams ended up falling behind this group of teams. And obviously, Georgia didn't make that final field, but almost all of the rest of those other teams had direct losses to these teams as well. So for these two programs who have unorthodox coaches, right? Jim Harbaugh, obviously, uh, coming up, uh, going to the NFL, coming back to try and kind of save his alma mater. And then you have Kalen DeBoer, somebody who spent so much time at the NAIA level before going to Indiana, before going to Fresno State, before becoming the head coach at Washington. This, to me, is such a beautiful moment and such a beautiful game because I think it tells the rest of the sport that college football is open to you that there is opportunity to build something, to compete for a national championship, to hire coaches in nontraditional ways, to recruit in non-traditional ways, and to find diamonds in the rough and have an opportunity to be on the biggest stage. I, I put together a list of 12 teams at the beginning of the season that I said, I think that in a playoff era, Because of consolidation, these are the only twelve teams that I think will win the national. Have a chance to win the national championship, and you know it's the teams like Alabama, like Georgia, like Texas, like Ohio State. I didn't. Michigan was my first cut on that list because I did not like how they competed with Georgia two years ago with TCU last year. I, I was worried about how it would happen this year, and Washington certainly was not on my list. One of these two teams is about to win the national championship and I have never been happier to be wrong.
1: Yeah, no, it's exciting. This isn't like last year where TCU got in and it felt like Michigan just had a terrible game and then Cinderella got crushed. This is two teams that we felt, you know, I, I personally thought we were going to get this as a championship game and I knew I was in the minority. Um, You know, I thought they were both going to squeak through and holy cow, am I hanging my hat on that particular prediction, but heading into this game (laughs) going to the recruiting rankings i think this is gonna we see two very different approaches here obviously michigan brings in guys and seems to just develop them really well and that's why the nfl is absolutely salivating on the guys that are about to come out of that wolverines roster in a couple of months with washington it's a bit of talent it's a bit of spotting you know diamonds in the rough but at the same time we can't get over the fact that you know we've got a couple of great transfers there and Penix being the uh the, uh, the 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 uh, the symbol of that, and how much have transfers really worked into disrupting the the traditional recruiting rankings and all of that stuff. So there's that, as you mentioned earlier on this conversation, um, recruiting seems to have democratized quite a bit because of NIL, because of the portal allows players to move around. So I'm wondering, is this, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but is this the point where we look back and we say, okay, now where TCU was like the canary in the coal mine. They somehow made their way in. But was that really that transitioning into this, transitioning into the 12-team playoff where we see which teams are able to make it through? Are we going to see something where recruiting rankings are important but not quite the same, like, predetermined nature of it's going to only be the six or 12 teams that are ever going to have a shot to make it all the way in? I'm curious to see how that stands as we go in. And again, going to these two coaching staffs, I mean, they both, you know, Harbaugh, obviously the family is, is a big deal. You know, obviously his brother's doing quite well in the NFL. He's Michigan math through and through. But I remember when San Diego hired him I because I, I, I lived in Southern California. I was fascinated that, you know, the Toreros, the uh, non-scholarship program, which is a really cute campus. It's not a public school. It's a little Catholic school on this and the kind of mountain ridge in San Diego had hired this guy. Then he turns them into a winner and they're a non-scholarship team, and they managed to get pretty far. I remember when Stanford hired him, and I'm like, okay, that gets me nervous as a USC fan. Because this is like, this is when Pete Carroll was at his peak. I'm like, okay, they hired a guy who can win at a non-scholarship FCS team to coach Stanford. That seems to be a good, that could be a good fit because Stanford's got its limitations with academics and all that stuff. And we saw how quickly he ran with that. So when we went to the NFL as USC fan, I was relieved. You know, I'm like, okay, because that guy was, that was terrifying coach at Stanford. We saw him in the NFL, obviously came back and, and after, you know, that I still remember the splashing he, he was hired by Michigan. I think anyone who was around, remembered that the Harbros that they had in Fox, like all dressed like him. They had the whole bus and khakis, the whole nine yards, you know, people were just going a little too hard on him. I think for what he was, had delivered so far. And here we are now, finally, he's reached. The level that people were, had hoped for him, um, when, especially in Michigan, when they had hired him in Ann Arbor. Now, DeBoer, I think he's still so new to all of this. I mean, not new to coaching, just new to the public. A lot of people just don't. I still remember how mellow he was at the end of the game. It was like, yeah, we won a game, you know, <laughs> at the end of the Sugar Bowl. Uh, and Just to see him and to see his rise from NAIA. to, to And he did what some, some of those coaches have to do. There, he won three national championships at Sioux Falls. You know, in like five or six seasons, and he has to take a coordinator job at FCS because sometimes that's how it happens. Um, and then he managed to work his way up, clawed his way up. Fresno State offensive coordinator ends up becoming the offensive coordinator at Indiana, coach at Fresno State, coach at Washington. He's got a tremendous head coaching record, but he has just grounded out, rose up. And part of me wonders, like, are we, is this going to finally get some people? Because I think of him now and Lance Leipold. Like, you got two people who are great at lower division football knew how to coach, knew how to put together solid teams in much harder circumstances. Because when you're coaching NAIA, it's just like, you know, do we have the budget to even go to all our opponents right now? I still remember when there was an NAIA team a couple of years ago that, I, I'm not going to name them, but they had to actually put out fundraisers to get their team's rings, like to get all the players' rings for winning the national championship. It's a totally different experience to do that and to coach football. I mean, it, it's a hard hard business. I Part of the reason why I think so many of the coaches also, uh, especially from that division, must really appreciate Ted Lasso for watching how, what he, you know, what he was doing when they, when they kind of painted that picture. But watching this, it's such an exciting coaching matchup to say nothing about the playing matchup. I mean, we're going to get into this folks. We're going to break down this game before we get to it, but this is just, just this initial look. I agree with you. I cannot be more excited for this national championship. Both teams are deserving. Both teams you just can't pick one automatically. There is no given here. This doesn't feel like, well, the safe bet's Georgia versus TCU. You know, this is this is a game where it's going to be fun to break down who we think is going to win where because the matchups are absolutely going to be a delight. Yeah, I want to go back to to something that you said. Okay, so I
0: I don't like I this is just like a contextual question. Do you think that 2023 Michigan or 2023 Washington are as good as 2022 Georgia or 2021 Georgia?
1: You know, I, I'm not sure if you can say pound for pound they are. I think particularly 2021 Georgia was a beast of a team. Do I think that these teams could win potentially in a given game? You know, absolutely. I think they have the talent to do it. But consistently, I think that that 2021 Georgia team was, was unbelievable, as well as 2022. I think... And this is something I was acknowledged heading into this season pretty early on. Um, there hasn't been a team here that has seemed just that level of world beater. And I don't know if we're sunsetting that era or if it just is an aberration where we just didn't have a team that was like that. But as we saw in the semifinal last year, that Georgia team almost fell to Ohio State, you know, and an Ohio State team that a lot of people were kind of questioning why they were even in that fourth slot. So again, there there is that. There is that, you know, do I think pound for pound, are they stronger teams? No, I think those Georgia teams were stronger. Do I think they could beat them? I mean, and that's not what you said, but that's what I immediately want to go to. I think they could, certainly. And both of these teams have their peculiar ways of winning. um, And I think they would have that chance.
0: So the reason that I ask that is this. After the 2023, like last year's national championship game, I was probably more doomer and despondent about the sport and the status of it than I've been in a very long time. I kind of, uh, I, I kind of, you know, I grew to love the atomic bomb. I was like, you know what, whatever. Nobody can even do this. Who cares? What's the big deal? It's fine. I think that we are starting to reach a moment because of transfer portal because of nil because of uh democratized access to recruiting because of democratized access to the college football playoff where i think that maybe these super mega teams that we saw 2019 lsu 2020 alabama uh, 2021 and 22 georgia maybe that was just a blip on our radar because i look at the 2024 uh 247 composite rankings The top 10 players are all committed to different schools. I think that NIL has changed recruiting dramatically. I don't think it's going to be as easy as it was to sign seven, eight, nine, five stars in a recruiting class to get every single player that you want if you're Georgia or if you're Alabama. Now, they'll still have more talent than everybody else. But the question is, will they have so much more talent that nobody can compete? That's not the reality that we've had for most of the college football playoff and for most of the BCS era. We had years where Ohio State would lose to, uh, you know, it was Iowa they lost to a couple of years ago, right? We had years where Michigan would lose to Purdue. We'd have years where Alabama would lose to Ole Miss. We had years where where uh, Oklahoma would get upset by Kansas State or Iowa State, right? Like, there was a level of accessibility that I think existed very recently that we moved away from. I mean, we talk a lot about Ryan Day's 56-7 and record. Big whoop. He hasn't done it against anybody who has the ability to compete with him, right? Like, they have, they're one in six against opponents that actually matter, that are top 10 opponents. They're, They're beating up on teams that can't hang. So the question is, if we are reaching a moment because of NIL... Because of the transfer portal, because of all these other factors, uh, because of one-year transfers, I think is a big part, right? It's harder to to accumulate and store up depth the same way as maybe it was two or three years ago. Does that change the sport to such an extent that maybe it does open the door to uh, the number 14 247 talent composite team and the number 26 talent composite team both having a chance to play for a national championship?
1: I think that's a great question. And it's it's it makes me think just historically, even pre-BCS pre, pre uh, BCS era, how many times would we be looking at the same handful of teams? And that era was more of Nebraska, which was a sleeping giant that just needs a couple of more nudges, apparently. Um, or, you know, was it going to be Oklahoma? Was it going to be the same names? A lot of the names we we're talking about now, but with a few aberrations here or there, maybe that wild BYU season that a lot of, lot of things fell into place there. Um, and then, you know, Pitt back in the 70s. But typically, it was the same teams over and over and over again, even in the pre-BCS era, because it was poll inertia, I think. It was also because people expected to see those teams. You just didn't see these kind of playoff runs. Um, for those of you who are real into this stuff, look at some of those old historical polls where you'd see, like, multiple undefeated teams that were nowhere near the top because of just the way the uh, folks in the newspaper rooms and, in you know, the press boxes and, and the eras when TV wasn't even prevalent, just sort of assumed the other team was going to go. Because, folks, you don't have to go that far back before all t- all the games were not being televised. So, absolutely, I think that's why, as much as I'm looking forward to this game at NRG, this is going to be an absolute great segue for next season, because now we're going to really get a chance to experiment. We're going to see, okay, now we've got 12 teams that have a real shot at it. Let's see if one of these teams, through guts, through coaching, through just... Individual performances, overall, you know, uh, ensemble work manages to get into a championship game. And are we then going to look back and go, like, you know, that 14 playoff was a neat transition, but we still were limited. We were still giving teams that now we realize, gosh, you know, the fifth ranked team somehow has an odd, odd, you know, an inexplicable chance of work to run the table. Who knows? But it's an auspicious time. It's a great time to be a college football fan. I'll tell you what.
0: Real quick before we go, we're going to have a whole week, of course, to talk about this matchup. We'll have a preview pod coming up later this week. But when I look at, at uh, Washington playing against Michigan, uh, I love this matchup. You know, these first two games were a matchup of strength, right? It, it was a physical defensive team versus a physical defensive team and a pass-happy offense versus a, a super pass-happy offense. This is the opposite. This is the contrast ball where, where you have a Michigan team that wants to beat you into submission against a Washington team that, of course, wants to go over your head, confuse you. The biggest factor that I'm curious to see is, I think, and this actually might be something to dig into a little bit more when we get a little more into the offseason. Misdirection is king. Like, like, that is that is the the key right now. Being able to run in a straight line is great, but being able to get guys in motion, being able to to win in that kind of way, which, by the way, this is completely unreal. It's one of the reasons I love that Penn State hired Andy Kotelnicki as their new offensive coordinator, but that's a, a conversation for another day. I think that both of these teams are both going to have a lot prepared from a misdirection perspective. But also defensively, I expect them to be more prepared for the misdirection than either Texas or Alabama was able to be defensively. We're going to see Washington play, I think, a lot more zone coverage. I think that we're going to see them really try to stack that box, make JJ McCarthy make throws downfield, uh, and, and I think they're going to hold up decently well. And on the other side, I mean, look, <laughs> Mike Sanders still and uh, and uh, oh my gosh, I always forget the other table. It's not Will Johnson, but uh, the, uh they obviously are a tremendous combo. Uh, and I think that they're the best combo that Washington has faces here by a good margin. So the question is, will that the rest of that Michigan secondary be able to kind of keep up with Washington's third and fourth receivers is Washington going to be able to create some offense in the running game. And by the way, if Dylan Johnson can't play, what are they going to do to get some of those tough short yardage opportunities? This is such a fascinating matchup. (sighs) I want to say right now, if I had to pick this game right now, and again we're we're just we're we're twelve hours removed from this matchup being finalized, so we're gonna have time to dig into it a little bit more. If I had to say right now, I think it ends up being a relatively low-scoring game where Washington has a lot of yards but doesn't score a lot of points. But I think that they just have such an advantage in Michael Penix Jr. I'm going to say Washington 27, Michigan 21.
1: Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, because going into this, it is going to be an interesting pair of of, you know, that I'm I'm absolutely. I'd say the matchup I'm most curious to see is that Joe Moore award winning offensive line of Washington against that defensive line of Michigan. And that defensive line, you know, you could say the low snap had a bit to do with it, but they are a big reason of why the game ended in overtime. So I'm absolutely that that matchup is going to be interesting to me. I'm I would not. I think Washington's going to win this one, and I think you were right ultimately all along. (laughs) You know that's why you all have to listen to to listen to my colleague here because that this offense is going to put up points no matter what. I'm just not convinced the secondary and and the DBs of of um, of Michigan can keep up. So Washington's going to put up points, and I just don't think. This Michigan team is designed to put up points to the level because I thought Texas was ready to do that, and clearly they weren't. And if I'm looking at and comparing Texas, Texas with Michigan, I mean, yes, the Michigan defense overall might be a little bit better in some ways, and maybe they are a lot better. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but that was, they could not keep up with that, that offense. So I think ultimately this Michigan offense will keep up, but we'll break it down a whole lot more as we head into later this week, as we get in the run-up to this national championship game. So on behalf of all of us here, on behalf of myself, Bob Iary, on behalf of my wonderful co-host, Sanjay Raja, on behalf of our producer, Joey Alberti, you know, we thank you all for listening to us. This is always a great time. Hopefully my voice will be in a little better situation next show or not. We'll see. <laughs> if you get a chance, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show. You can find Sean's work at cbssports.com and at Sean J. Raja on X and TikTok. I'm Bob Icaieri. and part of the RCFB gang on Reddit. We always enjoy hearing from you. Always enjoy having you a part of our conversation. Have a great one. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.